0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 166 Alvin Lamson's On the Doctrine of Two Natures in Jesus Christ, Part 2. In this second half of his short book, Lamson unloads several other objections, most of which focus on the interpretation of the New Testament. See what you think about his objections and look up the passages that he mentions. Those are listed on the blog post for this episode of the Trinity's podcast. Now, back to Alvin Lamson's On the Doctrine of Two Natures in Jesus Christ. Again, we are accustomed to look to Jesus as affording an example of deep, confiding and submissive piety, manifested in all his words and actions, and especially by frequent and earnest prayer, and we object to the doctrine of his supreme divinity that it destroys the force of this example. Indeed, upon the supposition that he was truly God, we are unable to comprehend what is meant by those expressions of dependence and trust which constantly fell from his lips." Are we to understand by them that in his human he felt dependent on his divine nature? That one part of himself leaned for support on another part of himself? Had this been his meaning, he would certainly have chosen language better fitted to convey it. Once more, what construction are we to put on his prayers? To whom were they directed? Will you say that in his human nature he prayed to his divine, in one part of his person to another part of it? Or as the second person of the Trinity, did he pray to the first person of the Trinity? As the second of three somewhats or three distinctions, all equal, existing in the same being, did he pray to the first of those distinctions or somewhats? For both these terms are employed by Trinitarians. If he was the infinite God incarnate, his prayers must either have been addressed to one of the three persons or distinctions in one being by another of the persons or distinctions in that same being so that the being who prays and the being to whom the prayer is addressed are the same. Or they must have been addressed to the divine part of his person by the human part of it, so that the person who prays and the person to whom the prayer is addressed are the same. One of these two suppositions the Trinitarian is compelled to adopt, and we know not which of them is the more absurd. Both of them render Christ's devotions unintelligible and deprive us of the legacy of his precious example. Further, we think that the doctrine of two natures in Jesus Christ as influencing the laws of interpretation throws the utmost darkness and obscurity over the sacred writings. We consider it a plain truth that the Bible is to be interpreted in precisely the same way with other ancient writings. We are to ascertain the sense of it by the same process that we employ to ascertain the sense of any work which we attempt to read. On any other supposition, it is perfectly unintelligible, and the fact that it was unintelligible would force us to conclude at once that it had no claims to a divine character. If God condescends by messengers and prophets to instruct men on subjects connected with their most important interests, we may be certain that he will cause the information which he thinks fit to communicate to be conveyed through a medium capable of being understood. That is, the messengers he employs must use language in the ordinary way. They must observe those established laws and usages from which no writer who wishes to be understood on whatever subject he treats ventures to depart. We cannot suppose that he would so far sport with his creatures as to present the instruction he professes to impart in a form which would render it useless by preventing it from being understood. We complain of the doctrine of the two natures, as explained by its friends, that it leaves us in the utmost doubt about the sense of revelation, that it makes the New Testament a book wholly unlike all others that renders it necessary for us to judge of the mean of it, therefore, as we judge of that of no book, ancient or modern. Consequence is, we can never be certain that we understand the facts or observations recorded by the historians of the Lord. The impression which we receive concerning the most important of them may be entirely erroneous. It is not pretended that our Lord on any occasion intimated in which of his two capacities, the divine or human, he spoke or acted. He nowhere observes, This I say as man, or This I say as God. He has not thrown out the least hint by which we may be guided in determining what is to be ascribed to one nature and what to the other, nor is this deficiency supplied by the historians of his life. They have left on record nothing by which we may be assisted in deciding in which nature he at any time spoke or acted. No caution is used by them to prevent misconception. No care is taken to guard their readers against taking the words of their master in their literal and obvious sense when he disclaims the attributes of the Infinite Father. This is strange. It is wholly unaccountable on the supposition that they understood him in the sense in which Trinitarians would have us believe they did. It is an omission we cannot explain, and one which may be attended with fatal consequences, for it exposes us to perpetual error in our attempts to find the sense of our Lord's words a more than oracular obscurity hangs over the sacred pages. They may mean anything or everything, according to the prejudices and imagination of the reader, and there is no end to the absurdities they may be made to teach. In fact, upon the principle of interpretation adopted by Trinitarians, the plainest assertions of our Savior may be invalidated, nor could he have denied that he possessed supreme divinity in language the force of which might not have been evaded. Let us suppose that instead of saying, My Father is greater than I, I can of myself do nothing, my doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me, he had asserted expressly, I am not the supreme God, I am not the same being with the Father, who commissioned and sent me. We have only to affirm, in order to set aside the evidence of these latter assertions, that they have reference only to his human nature, that they are true of him as man only. The two classes of assertions admit of a common construction. If the former do not teach the Son is inferior to the Father and distinct from Him, neither do the latter, nor is it in the power of words to express it. And had our Savior been commissioned to inculcate it, He must have sought in vain for language, which the ingenuity of men might not have distorted into a sense entirely foreign from that He intended to convey. We do not, upon mature reflection, perceive in what manner the above-mentioned objection can be obviated without abandoning the doctrine of two natures. We know it is said that we must determine whether Christ's human or divine nature is referred to by what is affirmed of it, according to the maxim of the schools, the subject is known by its predicate. Thus with regard to the assertions, my father is greater than I, I can of my own self do nothing, no man knows that day and hour. No, not the angels in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father only, and those in which Jesus is described as praying to the Father, being exalted, and receiving from him a name above every name, and others of a similar character, we are told that they refer to Christ not in a personal capacity, but in one of his natures only, that is, his human. But in what manner this strange inference is authorized by the maxim alluded to, we confess ourselves unable to discover. It appears to us to be founded on a disregard of the plain and obvious force of expressions in themselves quite simple and intelligible. If language is capable of a definite sense, and we know anything about the laws of reasoning, the legitimate inference to be drawn from the above-mentioned assertions is that Jesus is inferior to the Father, not as to a part, but the whole of his nature. That is, he is so in an absolute, unqualified sense. There is nothing in what is affirmed concerning him which necessarily requires the subject to be taken in a restrained sense, nothing in the nature of the expressions employed which limits them to a part of this subject. These expressions, in their most obvious sense, are not repugnant to reason, nor, we think, to the general train of facts and arguments found in the Scriptures, and do not therefore require to be restricted. To restrain them by supposing that they are appropriated only to one part of Christ's nature— they are not true when affirmed of him absolutely or generally, is really to put on them a construction altogether unnecessary and manifestly forced. A doctrine which is supported by a mode of interpretation which would convert the Bible into an inexplicable book and render all human language dark and uncertain, we need not add, cannot be true. Let us next advert to some of the supposed uses of the doctrine. Its advocates consider it important, first, as furnishing a solution of some difficulties arising from the apparently discordant language used by the sacred writers with reference to Christ, who sometimes, as they admit, speak of him as a finite and derived being, and sometimes, they contend, employ expressions which imply the possession of a divine nature and divine attributes. The most ready method of solving these difficulties, they tell us, is to suppose that he possessed not one nature, but two, a derived and underived, a finite and infinite, a human and a divine. This supposition, it is urged, makes all plain. It furnishes a key, by the help of which the treasures of hidden wisdom, locked up in the inspired volume, may be laid open, so that all may be partakers." To this statement it might be sufficient to reply that the hypothesis in question, as we have shown, is liable to insuperable objections, especially when it supposes a principle of interpretation which mystifies language and makes the Bible utter uncertain or delusive sounds. But we are prepared to meet the argument on different ground. We maintain that the difficulties alluded to are greatly exaggerated, That the greater part, if not all of them, may be fully removed by the application of those rules of criticism which we think ourselves authorized to apply in the explanation of all other writings, and the hypothesis of the two natures is not, therefore, needed for their solution. Our views on the subject of its necessity as affecting apparent discrepancies in the language of the New Testament may be stated in few words. We consider the fact that Jesus Christ is a being distinct from the Father and inferior to him, completely established by the general strain of the Bible. No fact or sentiment is more plainly, explicitly, and forcibly taught and inculcated. Take the following among numerous other testimonies equally express which might be quoted. This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17.3 But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. 1 Corinthians 8.6 There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 At the same time we admit that there are a few passages capable of receiving a construction which favors the Trinitarian supposition, but they do not, we conceive, necessarily require this construction. They admit of being understood differently, without appearing to be forced from their natural sense. We think that without departing from the established laws of criticism, we are able to explain them in a manner consistent with the views which we are led from the general tenor of the language of the New Testament to form of the Savior. We conceive that nothing is there said of him which may not be said of a being inferior in his whole nature to God. Language occurs there, which is sometimes figurative and sometimes partakes of the nature of rhetorical description. It is partly popular and requires therefore to be restrained and modified, and partly the language of feeling and sentiment, which is necessarily somewhat indefinite. It is not surprising that some of this language should at first view occasion embarrassment, and that some expressions are met with which admit of being understood in different senses. It would be strange if they conveyed the same sentiment or shades of sentiment to all minds. We are persuaded, however, that they are susceptible of a construction which is in unison with our views on the person and rank of the Savior, and therefore think the hypothesis of two natures unnecessary. It is always easy to gather from the general cast of an author's writings and the mode in which he ordinarily expresses himself, if he is accustomed to think and write with any tolerable accuracy, what are his leading views on the subject of which he treats. These views will be brought forward distinctly. They will, probably, be frequently adverted to and be presented with great prominence. Passages, however, may occur in his writings, the meaning of which is less clear, passages perhaps which, understood in their literal and obvious sense, and without reference to the trains of reflection into which they enter, may appear to militate with the views and principles we are led by the general import of his language to ascribe to him. Now, what is the process which common courtesy and the laws of sound criticism authorize and require us to pursue with regard to such passages? How are we to regard them? Are we to consider them of chief importance in our attempts to ascertain our author's meaning? Are we to select them as proof texts? Are we to erect systems on them? Are we to appeal to them as the passages which best express the real views of the writer? Are we by exalting the letter above the Spirit to make them utter sentiments at war with those breathed perhaps from every page of his productions? No, we do not proceed thus in the interpretation of any human author. We do not expect to draw important proofs and illustrations from the more obscure mystical expressions a writer may sometimes employ. We do not always remain satisfied with the meaning which first offers itself on meeting with such expressions. If, according to their most obvious construction, they appear repugnant to common sense and the prevailing tone of the writings in which they occur, we feel compelled to suppose that we have not discovered their true meaning and we seek some other which is in harmony with reason and with the known opinions of the author. Of this principle we proceed in the interpretation of the Bible. We conceive that obscure and ambiguous terms and phrases which seldom occur must bend to its prevailing language and spirit. The more difficult parts must be explained by the more easy, figurative by plain, the more abstruse by the more simple from the manner in which our Savior and His Apostles usually express themselves when they speak without metaphor, from the views and illustrations to which they most frequently recur. From observations and assertions often reiterated, we must endeavor to ascertain what their real sentiments were, what the great and fundamental doctrines they received and were anxious to inculcate. In interpreting the more dark and mysterious expressions which are occasionally met with in their discourses and writings, we must adopt a meaning which harmonizes with those doctrines, though it may not always be such as the natural force of the expressions employed would most readily suggest. This is reasonable. Common sense and common justice, in fact, require it of us. Now, the simple and proper inferiority of the Son to the Father, we think, is inculcated and echoed and re echoed from Matthew to Revelation, and is not, therefore, to be set aside by a few expressions which, taken literally and apart from the others with which they stand connected, may appear to suggest a different conclusion. Such expressions, we feel under the necessity of supposing, are to be received with some modification and restriction. They are few in number, and the evidence derived from them comparatively of little weight at most. Allowing it its full force, it is insufficient to overthrow or materially weaken the immense mass of proofs which are brought to establish the fact that Jesus partook of a finite and derived nature and attributes, and of no other. Further, the advocates for the twofold nature of Christ allege that their views are attended with some advantages as regards the atonement. A wide field of remark is here open, but we must confine ourselves to one or two observations. To the popular doctrine of a satisfaction or substitute, we object that it robs God of his moral and paternal attributes, that instead of calming our apprehensions and relieving distrust, Therefore, it only serves to aggravate our fears and wrap nature in gloom. But waiving this and numerous other objections which might be urged, we shall simply point out one fallacy which wholly invalidates the argument for Christ's divinity from the supposed necessity of an exalted victim, a fallacy which has been often enough exposed but is not yet abandoned. Sin, it is argued, since it is committed against an infinite being, is an infinite evil and deserves infinite punishment. None but an infinite being is therefore capable of making atonement for it. This reasoning has in it so much palpable sophistry that we may well be surprised it should ever be employed or for a moment listened to. In the first place, nothing can be more illogical than to suppose that sin, because committed against an infinite being, is an infinite offense. No act of a finite being can have a character of infinity, but throwing out of view this and similar considerations which might be added, it is untrue that an infinite atonement has been made, even upon the hypothesis of Trinitarians. Would they be understood to say that the supreme and infinite God, the great author and preserver of nature, really suffered and died on the cross, that an omnipotent being was put to death by children of dust, that the Creator perished by the hands of His creatures, that the world was left three days during which Jesus lay in the grave without a God, that the universe stood without a preserver? No, the bare supposition of such an event, if it were possible, would, in the highest degree, shock the feelings of every one. On the hypothesis, then, that Christ was God as well as man, he suffered only in his human nature. No infinite nature suffered. What then becomes of the infinite atonement? No such atonement has ever been made, even admitting that Christ united in himself the divine and human natures, On this supposition, it was man only that endured the cross, so that with regard to the doctrine of the atonement, a belief in the deity of Jesus has not the least advantage over a belief of his simple humanity. One further difficulty with regard to the death of Christ suggests itself upon the hypothesis assumed by Trinitarians. They are compelled to disown the conclusion that the divine nature suffered. Yet the divine and human natures, it is asserted, were indissolubly united in the person of the sufferer. And we are told expressly by Dr. Barrow that, quote, the union did not cease even when our Lord as man did undergo death, end quote, that this union persisted when that, quote, between human soul and body was dissolved, end quote. Here certainly appears to be occasion for some very fine distinctions distinctions, we are afraid, much too refined for a common minds. To a man of plain understanding, it must appear somewhat paradoxical to say that one of two natures indissolubly united in the same person may with this person undergo death while the other does not partake of suffering. It would seem that the union must be dissolved at death, but this is inadmissible upon the hypothesis of Trinitarians. The union is indissoluble. We leave them to get rid of the consequences. Some other advantages are occasionally described as following from the union of two natures in Christ which we do not deem of sufficient importance to be noticed. If the objections stated in the foregoing pages have any force, the doctrine of two natures in Jesus Christ is attended with difficulties vastly more embarrassing than those it professes to remove. Admitting the latter to be as great as they appear to the advocates of the doctrine, they amount, we conceive, to this and to nothing more that apparently discordant expressions are occasionally found in the scriptures, which this doctrine reduces into harmony with each other, that the sacred writers in speaking of Christ use language which appears consistent only on the supposition that he possessed both a divine and a human nature, to remove apparent discrepancies, an hypothesis is employed, which, according to the view we have taken of it, is full of contradictions, an hypothesis which, as we have seen, is manifestly absurd and impossible, which violates the personal unity of Jesus, impeaches his veracity and destroys the force of his example, mars the simplicity and darkens the sense of the sacred writings, and which, after all, fails of its object in the very point where, if its friends are to be believed, it is most wanted, that is, the satisfaction or atonement. No hypothesis can be attended with graver inconveniences than this, Whatever difficulties we escape, we fall into greater by adopting it. But we have stated that in our view, no formidable difficulties arise from the forms of language alluded to, and that all alleged discrepancies disappear when the expressions which are supposed to imply them are understood in the sense they manifestly bear. We see not the least necessity then for the supposition of two natures in Christ, even were the difficulties attending it fewer than they are. The above-mentioned objections are enough to stamp on the doctrine under consideration the character of error. We have, however, one further objection, and it is our last. We have examined the doctrine in its several parts and bearings and followed it out into some of its obvious consequences and have seen that it carries on the face of it evidence of having originated in human invention. We should be surprised to find any support for such a doctrine in the Scriptures. We venerate them too much to believe that they can teach it and we state as our only remaining objection our full conviction that it receives no support whatever from them. It is not alleged by its friends that it is anywhere expressly stated in the sacred writings in the form in which it is received by them. It is admitted by their soundest divines that nothing is directly said of the union of the divine and human natures in the person of Jesus Christ. It is entirely a matter of inference that such a union exists. This we consider very unfortunate for the hypothesis. It throws no small degree of suspicion over it. It might have been expected that a doctrine of so extraordinary a character, so opposed to all the common apprehensions of the human mind and the ordinary belief of the Jews to whom our Savior's instructions were originally addressed, so novel and mysterious So calculated to astonish and repel, honest and alarm, if you will, prejudiced minds, it might have been expected that such a doctrine, had it formed part of Revelation, would have been accompanied with the strongest evidence. The most ample testimony of its truth would have been given. It would have been stated in the most plain and explicit manner. The necessary definitions and illustrations would have been added and objections met and refuted. One would have supposed that it would be a topic to which our Lord would perpetually recur and on which he would fully and unequivocally explain himself, expressing his views in language which would effectually preclude all misconception and uncertainty. Reserve on a subject confessedly so obscure and difficult would be particularly misplaced, as it would necessarily produce doubt, perplexity, and error. When we take into view these considerations and reflect that not a single passage occurs in the whole New Testament which contains anything like an inculcation of the doctrine in question, the omission appears very extraordinary. We say more, it seems utterly incapable of being accounted for. The doctrine, if true, is certainly an important one, and of a nature, as we have said, which require that it should be taught with the greatest distinctness. Why, then, this silence upon the subject on the part of our Saviour and His Apostles? Why is it that no direct trace, no incidental notice of it is found in any expressions which dropped from their lips? Why are we left to gather it from ingenious comparisons and remote processes of reasoning? Why compelled to search the Scriptures in vain for terms adequate to express it? For it is not pretended that the phrases twofold nature, God man, Divine human and others found so convenient in modern times or anything resembling them are met with in our Bibles. These are inquiries to which the friends of the doctrine have never and never can furnish a satisfactory reply. There is another consideration which has great weight with us. It may be fairly concluded that those who were about the person of our Lord or who were occasionally addressed by him had no suspicion that he was God. From the circumstance that they give no evidence of having felt that astonishment which the disclosure of such a fact could not have failed to excite in their hearts. Had they regarded him as the supreme God, is it possible that upon first becoming acquainted with the fact they would have betrayed no surprise? That he was in appearance a man is not doubted, as such he was presented to their senses. What then must have been their astonishment upon hearing that he, who stood before them in the human form, was the author of the universe? Yet nothing of this astonishment appears to have been felt by them. It is indeed more than once said that those about him were astonished at his mighty works, and the inference they made was that he was of or from God. The idea that he was God himself seems never to have crossed their minds. No curiosity was expressed and no inquiries made of such kind as might have been expected had they entertained any suspicion that he was perfect God as well as perfect man. The inference is that they were ignorant of any such union, and this, we think, affords satisfactory evidence that it did not exist. Had it existed, can we believe for an instant that they would have received no intimation whatever of it? Would they have been left in ignorance of it to the last? In his moments of confidential interaction, would their master have dropped no hint from which they might gather it? Would he have died with this weighty and important secret locked up in his own heart? Would he have persevered in his silence after his resurrection? Would he have finally left the world to go to his father, and yet have taken no care to inform his attached and grateful followers of a fact esteemed by its friends so precious? such conduct would be altogether inexplicable. The fair inference is that the doctrine was a production of later ages. We lament to add that by adopting it without any necessity, we assume an hypothesis which, unsupported as it appears by the scriptures and followed by consequences the most appalling, seems to disgrace religion and to dishonor the human understanding. Nor let it be imagined that anything is lost by abandoning this doctrine. Jesus remains an object of our sincerest and, under God, our profoundest gratitude and regard. We can have no doubt of his sufficiency for the purpose which he was sent to accomplish. Our confidence in him as a deliverer who is able to save to the utmost is not diminished. Our hopes of pardon through him are not impaired or shaken. God raised him up and employed him to convey the benefits of his mercy to mankind. On that mercy we rest believing that through whatever medium our Father may have chosen to impart it, that medium must be effectual, and that mercy shared by us, unless by a fault of ourselves. On the other hand, by discarding the doctrine of two natures, as stated by Trinitarians, we are freed from numerous embarrassments into which an attempt to explain and defend it unavoidably plunges its advocates. We are exempted from the charge of believing a contradiction or impossibility, The language of the sacred writing ceases to appear strange and mysterious, and all painful uncertainty about its meaning vanishes. We preserve the personal unity of the Savior and retain the benefit of his noble example. No seeming shade is thrown over his character, no suspicion of concealment and dishonesty attaches to him. He is presented to our view, robed in that heavenly purity and truth and ingenuousness, which make him venerable and lovely. This week's Thinking Music has been the track Bathed in Fine Dust by Andy G. Cohen. I'd like to send a special thanks out this week to Benjamin for his donation through PayPal. Benjamin, your gift is much appreciated and comes at a helpful time. Happy New Year to you and to yours. I'd also like to thank those who have been donating various amounts monthly through PayPal. Thanks also to Andrew, to John, to Paul, to Timothy, to Isaac, and especially to Daniel. Thank you so much. I hope you continue to find the podcast helpful. If you'd like to give a one-time or a monthly donation to the Trinity's podcast through PayPal, just look for the yellow button on the right side of any blog post at trinities.org. One final note to those who have been sending in questions through Facebook and email and by other ways. Thanks for your patience. I am collecting those and hope to do another listener questions episode before too long.